It's good to worship together, isn't it? Nathan, the team, Greg, Joshua, Scott, Bud, Jeff, EJ, thank you, men, for your leadership, for your service. We appreciate you. So good to worship together. So good to be here. Man, I love these retreats. We do them every year. Uh, just having an atmosphere of encouragement, of affirmation, um, of just acknowledgement of where we are has been just huge for us as a church. And so, again, thank you for, uh, for being here. I'm thrilled tonight to, to have in, actually this weekend, with us uh, a dear friend of mine, Pastor Donnell Jones. Some of you were here a few months ago. You would have seen him on a video, actually played a little video of him there uh, in Baltimore after the riding that was there uh, in the city. And so Donnell pastors a church in Washington, D.C., but he does a ton of stuff up in Maryland um, there. And so he was driving through Baltimore right after the riots and went through there. It was just an encouragement uh, for, the, for a lot of the first responders there in the riding. Pray with the policeman. Uh, with, I'll let him maybe talk about it if you like. Let, let a young man to Christ right there on the streets, just him and his wife bring a lot of hope. And so uh, he is a guy who rushes in, who runs to the battle line, who isn't afraid of a difficult moment or a difficult thing in his life, as you'll hear. Um, Donnell is a senior pastor of Grace Covenant Church. It's a, a plant out of a larger Grace Covenant uh, church. Uh, he is in Washington, D.C. at a couple different positions that are interesting. You may know he is the chaplain for the University of Maryland basketball team. Gets to hang with those guys. And I think you're a chaplain for the NABC, too. Yeah, chaplain for the National Association of Basketball Coaches. So every year, Final Four, the coaches get together. He's the guy who ministers to them. And so um, God's really entrusted him with quite a lot. Uh, Donnell, as you'll hear, is just an incredible communicator. Um, I, I don't it's, I don't even want to steal any of his story because it's 20 times more powerful uh, when he shares it. But, of course, he's married. How many of you have th- three kids? Five. Sorry. What even close on that? Swing and a miss. Sorry. Um, grandchildren? How many? One. One. And her birthday is tomorrow, right? She turns, turns six tomorrow. So thank you for being here uh, with us. And so he's 49 when he, when he turned 50. When he turned, you are 50? Are you, are you Next month he turns 50, yeah. So, looks young, doesn't he? Yeah. I was getting my hair cut the other day. I was just my hairdresser, the lady who was doing my hair. I was like, African-American lady. She said, she told me she was, I think, 49 too. I said, God, you don't look that old. She's like, you know black don't crack. <laughs> I'm like, so I've been told. All right. She's like, now you believe it, don't you? All right. Fair enough. Known Donnell for a long time, but it really is an honor to have him here. Uh, he's got a fantastic church there, a very multicultural church like ours, right there in Washington, D.C. that reaches a lot of the leaders of our nation, ministering in that culture, very diverse, all kind of people coming to the city to, to use it for stuff, but he's there to bless the city uh, and to make a difference. And so uh, he has just an unforgettable journey in his life um, of redemption, of God's hand, of deliverance, um, of transformation. I don't know if I've ever really heard a story quite like his. And so I've asked him to come out and just sort of just share that story and part with us as he goes. We'll leave sort of a teaching element for the morning, but tonight I wanted to come and just minister to us, share with us what's on his heart. Um, Donnell, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for prioritizing your time in your life and being here with us. God loves you. Look how cool it's been. I mean, my goodness. Remember, guys, remember last year? It was like 117 out here. I think our cook's about passed out. So how about those cooks tonight, by the way? Thank you, guys. Kevin, Dudley, Jim Jones, appreciate you, men. 
he got he got some Rudy's on the way in. He came, I think he arrived with a smile on his face, and so didn't eat too much cream corn. He got out and hooped with us today, so appreciate you. He bought some shoes at Academy on the way in just so he could play with us. So they don't sell those size 14s anywhere, do they? So you know, all right. Anyway, would you guys please welcome my friend Donnell Jones? All right, I need all you men testosterone because I have four girls. So these are moments I love. My son is the oldest. He's married and out of the house. So from time to time, I call him, and he answers the phone, said, what's up, Dad? I said, I just needed to talk to somebody with them bass in their voice. So can you all just, just give me a good guttural man? Come on, let me hear from you. Go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I... I get to take that back home. They'll hold me for another six months. (laughs) It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, I really consider it an honor uh, to share this moment, to worship the God we love with you. And uh, I mean that with sincerity. I love your leadership team, Pastor Morgan, Pastor and lead pastor and elder here, along with the elders, Galen and John, who I just met, tremendous men just upon meeting them. And it's a reflection on the people that you are. Um, earlier today, I got to go by Mosaic and just walk through the place and uh, experience your presence and the presence of God. And I am um, in awe of what God has built here through you. So to your leadership, would you just join me in celebrating uh, the leaders that God has given you in this house? Thank you. Well, you're flat amazing. Amazing. I mean that. One of the ways we know God loves us is by the kinds of leaders he gives us. And so you men are greatly loved. You're greatly loved. And I know that just from being here in the brief moment. Um, So as um, uh, Pastor Morgan said, um, I'm here from Washington, D.C. And I wait tables. That's what I do. Washington, D.C., when people say, what do you do? I say, I wait tables. Uh, Because in D.C., oftentimes, more than asking who you are, they ask what you do. And depending on your response, that's a measure of who you are as a man. But I realize that I'm not defined by what I do. I'm defined by who I belong to. And so when they ask me, what do you do? I say, I wait tables. I wait tables. And if they're not interested, they keep walking. And uh, the first table I wait is uh, my wife, Marianne, and our five children. Uh, Jonathan, the oldest, who's married to our beautiful daughter-in-law, Jessica. Uh, and then four girls after him, Mariah, who's 20, Gabriella's 18, uh, Serena's 16, and our youngest, uh, Micaiah, is 14. So when John moved out, he left me in the girls' dorm, uh, <laughs> the sea of estrogen. And uh, I've learned to swim fairly well in, in that. And they're so beautiful. Um, now, they, they've been their whole lives, but you know, that 20 to 14 is when young men begin to express interests and um, people have come to us and said, you know, what are you going to do? Because young men are beginning to approach your daughters and express interest in them. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm well prepared, been praying for them their whole lives. And in addition to that, I'm licensed. And I said, licensed? Yeah. I'm licensed to marry and to bury. And, uh, I have experience in both. So depending on their approach, I'll know what service to render. And uh, that usually gets it. That usually gets it. And uh, so my family is the first table I wait. 
the next table I wait is, as uh, Morgan said, Grace Covenant Church in the heart of downtown D.C., ethnically diverse uh, church, reflective of the community in which we live and love that, and uh, have been doing that now for 16 years. We were sent out and uh, started that and love it. Uh, it's a, the second table I wait. The third table would be the University of Maryland, where I serve as a character coach uh, for the men's basketball team and uh, have been doing that for about three years. Meet every week with uh, Coach Mark Turgeon, uh, the head men's basketball coach. And uh, we, about a year ago, had a moment where he just surrendered his life to Jesus. And uh, we've been meeting every week without fail, talking about how we grow in our relationship with God and one another. And uh, he just surrendered in his office. Um, he wanted to leave his office and go pray somewhere else. And I said, no, because this is what you are denying for Christ's sake. So let's do it right here because you love basketball more than anything. And now you're saying, God, I love you more than basketball. And so he's growing. So I actually keep praying for him. We now have a coach's Bible study with all the coaches. I meet with all the players once a week with the coach, with the players. It's character coaching. And then we do a Bible study called Playmakers. And we study the greatest playmakers in the Bible and learn the five moves that, that uh, God has trained all his, his great men. Uh, and that led to an opportunity to meet with um, – Kevin Anderson, the athletic director, and he said, what you're doing with the basketball team, I want that to be done with, done with all 17 sports. So we're now putting character coaches on all the teams, women, golf, et cetera. And we now do leadership coaching with the athletic director and his whole team of about 25. So just before coming here, we did a whole day retreat with the entire athletic, uh, all the associate ADs, all of them. It's just a wide open place. I've never seen a place more wide open. Um, in, in the years that I've had the opportunity to walk with God and men and, and work with them. So it's just been phenomenal. And traveling to other universities, the word is spreading. So it's just asking God for the, you know, you, I was telling someone the other day, no, just today on the basketball court, and I was saying how when responsibilities increase in our life, whether it's marriage, family, what you find is the need to uh, ask God for grace that's always been available that perhaps you didn't know you needed until this moment because of the responsibilities that have increased. We've, we've, we've not come close to exhausting the available grace of God. We just uh, rarely ask for it until the pressure's on, and then we find something new in him. At least that's been true for me. Uh, so uh, those are just some of the tables I wait. Like a server at a restaurant, you're usually covering more than one table. And uh, those are a few that I, that I serve. And, and it's like Daniel. That's my, my attitude. When Daniel was... Um, serving Nebuchadnezzar, he basically refused uh, to defile himself uh, with wine and food from the king's table. He basically said, that's not the table I eat from, that's the table I serve. And so I go through life realizing there are certain tables that I'm called to serve, not eat from. Maryland is one and there are others. And so, But here in a room like this, we get to eat together. Isn't that great? As men. And so um, I'm going to, um, as Morgan said, share really some of my journey and the purpose in sharing tonight um, is to really give glory to God. Uh, when the worship team started and it was so great, I may want you guys to come back up, but uh, if that's possible, but it's, um, it is not, not just now, but maybe later. Birds. Is it bats or birds? Bats. Just let me know now, right? Just, I see the exit signs clearly marked. Um, I was hoping he said birds, and, you know, we could kind of work with that a little bit. Um, 
But just, you know, as, as Morgan's asked, I want to share a little bit of my story with you all tonight. And um, I'm grateful that we get to be men uh, tonight in God's presence. And my expectation has really already been met that as we got up and read those cars, God needs men. God needs men who need him. God needs men who need him. And I'm a man who needs God. I'm desperate for God. I was a man who initially um, would become, uh, what's the word? I would, I'd become intimate with God uh, when I was desperate for him. Um, but now I'm desperate to be intimate with him. And uh, so, you know, tonight as we walk through this journey, hopefully there's something that you connect with and uh, that there would be just an open heaven that is meant tonight there would be a shout that would come from us of great unreserved worship of just a, an encounter with the living God that radically uh, encourages you, if not transforms you at your very core. That's my hope tonight, that if you came in here and you weren't free, you leave free. If there's something that you are carrying that God didn't put on you, it stops here tonight. And I'm confident that God's well able to do that. I have no confidence in myself tonight, but I'm trusting him for whatever he has for you. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to speak about, and I won't read from the scripture, but I'll give you the text. Joshua was a great leader that God appointed to lead his people following uh, Moses. There's a moment where they're crossing uh, the Jordan and there were Levitical priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the Ark represented God's presence. I like to say that there were men who were carrying the presence of God. Tonight in this room, there are men who carry the presence of God. There's nothing like men who carry the presence of God. And they carried the presence of God. And as they came to the water's edge, it says as soon as their feet touched the edge of the water, some distance far away, the water stood up in the heap. And then they walked into the middle of the Jordan and they stood there. And as they stood there, it said the waters were cut off from above and they were cut off from below. And they just stood in the water until it drained and they stood on dry ground. An entire nation were able to cross into their destiny. They were able to leave the desert and come into their destiny because men who carried the presence of God stood still. And I believe that as men tonight, if we would carry his presence, God would allow us to stand still and allow people in Austin and elsewhere move from the desert to their destiny. Is there any man here would like the privilege of being able to stand as one who carries the presence of God that allows a city, a people, a mosaic to actually cross from the desert into their destiny? Oh, what a, what a privilege that would be for us. But while they were standing there, God encouraged them through, through Joshua. He said, you're to take 12 stones. These were not small stones because he said each man, one from each tribe, had to carry it on their shoulder. Listen, I've, when you have to carry a stone on your shoulder, that's a pretty big stone. I've seen some stones out here. I thought, man, that's a big stone out there. I don't know if you saw the ones outside. Massive stones. The crane has a lift. But these men carried the stones from the center of the Jordan right where the priests were standing, and they brought them to the other side. And Joshua said, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Come on, shout men in here. Just make some noise. Come on. 
Just talk back to me. You can be louder than that. Come on, it's all men in here. Make some noise. Yeah. He said, in the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? You will tell them. You'll tell your children. You'll tell your descendants. This is what God did. And it will be a memorial forever. And you men have stones in your life. We become living stones, but I want to share one of the stones in my life. This is a stone, one of the memorials, because the idea was that when they crossed to the other side, they set up those stones as a memorial. Why? Because they would have battle after battle after battle after battle, and God would have to constantly remind them to be courageous, to be bold, not to be afraid. Any man here ever been afraid? Any man here ever, your heart ever melted with fear and you lost courage? He said, you need to have a memorial because when you go back, you're not to cross the Jordan again. It was a one-way ticket. But the stones are there as a memorial that when you have those challenging moments, you can go back and go, I have a stone of what God did in my life. So no matter what I'm going through right now, this memorial keeps me focused and moving forward and staying in the road to my destiny. And I'm going to pass this around and unfold the story of this memorial stone in my life. I have several stones, but this one is probably more precious than any of them. I'm born the oldest of two, Washington, D.C., to Morris and Diana Jones. My mom was a believer at 17. My dad was not. I was conceived before they were married, but they married before I was born. By the time I was three, my parents separated. With my eyes open, I can still see my father elevating his voice, striking my mother and knocking her out of bed on the floor. And at three years of age, there's not much you can do to stop your dad. By the time I was five, they were divorced. I can count on one hand the number of moments I spent with my dad, whether it was an hour or a weekend. I remember being with my mom and dad at the zoo and holding both their hands and they were already apart but this is a moment for some reason we got together and at five years of age here I am struggling to put their hands together because I wish I had the power of reconciliation but I couldn't do anything to join them back together so they were separated by the time I was eight turning nine years of age my father was murdered drug related he had been assaulted by three brothers who told him basically you cannot leave the lifestyle of drugs, even though he had recently committed his life to Christ. He said, I'll never sell drugs again. So they beat his head into the concrete and lost a lot of blood, went into his house, fell down the basement steps and died. And so at the funeral, my grandmother standing alongside me with the casket open says, you're the man of the house. I got to tell you, when you're eight years old, you have no clue what it means to be the man of the house, especially when the one who was the man of the house wasn't there often enough to model something for you. Because life is not just what's taught, it's a lot of what's caught. And he wasn't there, so I didn't catch much. So my identity with manhood changed like the television channel. Long before remote control, some of you remember, you had to get up and walk across the room and actually click the thing. So whoever was on that week, that was my role model for manhood. One day it was a $6 million man. Next day it was Get Smart. Next day it was Incredible Hulk. I got in trouble when it was Incredible Hulk because I'd go outside with my friends and say, don't make me mad. You won't like me if you make me mad. And I'd rip my shirt up and tear it. And my mother said, if you tear one more shirt, I'm going to tear you. So I couldn't be the Hulk for too long. 
I won't go through all the details, but we were on public assistance. I know what it is to have American poverty, and I've traveled to Africa, Asia, Europe, other places in the world. So I know what real poverty looks like in the world, but I grew up with American poverty. We had powdered eggs, powdered milk. Basically, it's bags with powder, and you pour water on it, and it just turns into eggs. It turns into, not eggs you want to eat, but that's what it turns into. My mom was like the widow who could stretch wheat flour and white flour and mix it together with water, and we'd have pancakes for breakfast and lunch for five years. No syrup, no, no jam, no butter. I loved school lunch. It was free, and it was a variety from breakfast and dinner. Um, we walked an hour to school just because we couldn't afford bus tokens. There was a time in our life where we lived in the Salvation Army, uh, and we were asked to leave suddenly. We ended up being homeless. That was really tough because being the oldest brother, I thought, don't cry in tough times. And my brother's trying to get rid of his dog because we, we got $25 to our name, and we're trying to check into the Hotel Harrington. And so he walks his dog away, but the dog keeps coming back, and he's crying. My mom's crying, and I'm trying not to cry. 13 years ago, why are we homeless? Got a voucher to go to McDonald's. We split a cheeseburger. He's like, is this our life? And my mom, every day of her life, said, love God, get a good education, and I love you. Every day. Every day. Every day. I'd come home from school, and that woman would be praying for two hours. You would speak to mom after she was done praying. She's one of the mamas who just prayed. She just cried on God. She believed, and she had faith. Just had amazing faith. And she transferred it to her children. But I was rebellious. I grew up in church. I knew when to stand up. I knew when to sit down. I could recite John 3.16 and a bunch of other passages. I had to say Psalm 91 from memory before I could go to school. I said, Mom, I'm going to be late. Well, you're going to be even later if you don't say Psalm 91. <sighs> he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shelter of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, okay, can I go now? Go to school. She would put the word down in us even though we didn't have regard for it. Bible studies was, Mom, how big was the Noah's Ark? Well, let's go buy some string, and we measured it on the playground. She brought the Bible alive for us. And uh, my mom's a great woman. She lives with me to this day, and we take care of her. And she, full of life, healthy, strong, black don't crack. You wouldn't know she's almost 70 years old. It's just a high stepper, loves to dance. And um, we recovered from being homeless. Um, Lived in some pretty, pretty low places. Uh, there was a time when we lived in a room, and um, the room was probably smaller than the cabin you're staying in now, maybe a quarter of that size, a twin bed, uh, one chair. My brother and I slept opposite each other. My mom slept in the chair with her legs up on us, and we had a trash can pushed up against the hole in the wall so the rat couldn't come through. And uh, I'd sit up at night and read the dictionary and memorize words like quaquaversal and sesquipedalian and stuff that just you don't even use. It just bo that's how bored I was. And um, I got um, finishing up high school. I was 17 years of age. And I began a relationship with a girl in the church. She was actually the pastor's daughter. The intent was not to begin a relationship. Um, she was 19. I was 17. And um, she needed help studying, um, and I was decent in the subject she needed help with. So I said, sure, we could study. She had her own apartment. She said, come over. I told my mom I was going over. My mom said, you know what? It would be better if you would just meet in a public place like a library. Don't go to her apartment. I said, mom, I'm a virgin. I'm going to wait till I get married. What's the big deal? Well, you're 19. She's 17. She has an apartment. You just want to even maybe abstain from the appearance of evil. That's how my mom was. At 17, I don't know if you remember 17, I don't know how to tell a girl 
I can't come to your apartment because my mom, no, I can't sit there. My mom said, no, mom, no matter where you put mom in the sentence, it's just not cool at 17. See, so anyway, why don't we just, because my mom, ah, no, it doesn't work anywhere in the sentence. And I just didn't have the character to say, look, I got something to do. Just meet me at the library. So I went to her apartment, helped her study. Torrential downpour, she couldn't drive in the rain, buses stopped running, no friend around to get me home. So I spent the night. She slept in her bed, in her room, I slept on the sofa. My mom knocked at the door the next day and said, so, I guess you're getting married now. Mom, nothing happened. And I guess she went to the library too. And there was a wedge between me and my mom. I went home, I was angry that my mom didn't believe me. Really mature 17 year old. Uh, hear the sarcasm in that. And I, int- I intentionally started seeing the girl. How many know this? Whoever you give your attention to, sooner or later, your affection follows. And where your affection goes, your order, your heart follows. And so, um, ill-advisedly, I, I went into that relationship, lasted about a year, broke it off. And two months later, she called and said she was pregnant. And um, I was hard. It was really hard. Um, we had a conversation, had to decide what we are going to do. Abortion, adoption. We're not getting married. I don't love you. I don't want to marry you. And um, I didn't see her at all during her pregnancy. Uh, to my shame, the day that our son was born, I didn't show up at the hospital. Um, we had started paperwork for adoption. But after our son was born, she, she basically told me, I don't want to put him up for adoption. I disagreed strongly. And she said, you know what? If you don't want to be his father, that's on you. But I'm going to be his mother. And I will raise him myself. I'll never look for you. And I will never ask you for a dime. You can go on with your life. And I went on with my life. I didn't look for her. I didn't look for our son. I basically went on with my life. She moved out of the D.C. area, no forwarding address, and I didn't need one. I went on to American University, full scholarship, all expenses paid for the most part. Um, But I was trying to suppress the choices I had made because the life lesson is you have freedom of choice, but you don't have freedom of consequences. And if you go to the beach and you try to suppress that beach ball, what happens? It just comes back up. So I didn't do well in school. Full ride. And basically, and it was an academic scholarship. And so I tried to suppress the fact that I abandoned them, but that was heavy on my soul. And sometimes as men, we don't realize what we're trying to suppress. And God's really trying to get us to confess because we weren't designed to suppress. We were designed to confess. We're designed to confess sin. We're We're designed to confess the word of God. David said, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones waxed old. Jeremiah said, well, if I don't preach anymore, your word is like fire shut up in my bone. So whether it's sin or the word of God, you've got to confess by design. You can't suppress. You get sick in your soul. You get sick in your body. You're a physician. You understand what happens. Worry, anxiety, all this stuff affects your bones. The very marrow in your bones is affected by the stuff you suppress. And so I never went to class and I never missed a party. So you know what your grades look like when you never go to class and you never miss a party? 
Never drank alcohol. Don't even know what it tastes like to this day. Never smoked a cigarette. Never been high in my life. Didn't need it. I could get high without any drugs. I could walk into a party and it's going to go up 10 decibels just because I walk in the room. Come in dressed like Mommy Vice. Get this thing started. Break dance, pop, do it all. Just turn this out. And so, so I, I um, after the first semester, I was on academic probation. Um, second semester, expelled. I was told I was a disgrace to my race in this university and I would never sit foot on this campus again. I had a, like a .45 GPA. When your GPA, your grade point average starts with a decimal point, that's pretty bad. Pretty bad. So by the time I was 19, I have a son I've abandoned, a girl friend who I've just basically messed up her life, and I've ruined my whole college career. So I was depressed. And um, then that's the turning point. That's the turning point for me. You don't have to get to that point. But I got to that point. 19 years of age, sent home from American University. Son I've abandoned. His mother who I've been beyond what words can describe. I'm, I'm, I'm so far from what God intended a man to be. Laying in the bed at home, watching cartoons. Friends calling, I'm refusing to answer the phone. I lived near the old Redskins Stadium and I walked across the street one night, stood on a bridge, looking in the water, not suicidal, I can swim. But that was a night that I said, God, I don't know you. There were no religious words that night. It was just a man being honest with himself and honest with God. I don't know you. I know how to do church. I know how to do church with the best of them, but I don't know you. I've got more religion than relationship, more tradition than truth. I don't like who I am and what I've become. Everything I do is destructive to me and to others. Either change me or take me out, but don't leave me like this. Please don't leave me like this. Weeping like a baby. Telephone pole. Light shining on it. And because of my church background, when the light hit it, God illumined it and I saw the cross. And after crying out to God, seeing that cross was my sign. I felt like he heard me. I was done playing. I wanted to be real. I wanted to understand, God, who are you? Dropped to my knees that night, and in all my misery, began to feel peace with God. Love from God. At my lowest, he stooped down, and I began to feel his love. I just lifted up my hand and said, please put me in a church with men who walk with you. Men who I can't fake the funk. Men who will challenge me and say, come on, bro. I left the bridge that night. 
And I got to tell you, the fall of man is not just two people eating a piece of fruit. The fall of man is ceasing to worship and serve God as creator and beginning to worship and serve created things. And the height of creation is man. So worshiping and serving self, which is why Jesus said, if you want to be mine, the first thing you have to do is deny self. Because your worship can't be about you. You know, tonight as we were talking about surrendering things to God, you know what I gave him tonight? Me. I gave him me all over again, and I keep doing it. Because I can give him money, I can give him time, but if I don't give him me, I'm only giving him what he has anyway. Because all the money and time I have, I got from him. He's not impressed. But when a man gives him himself, deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. We want to follow sometimes without denying self. The word deny means to stand over against. I had to stand over against Donnell with Jesus and say, I'm not with that dude anymore. I'm with you. Teach me your ways. That was the beginning of that night. Next thing I know, I'm working for a uh, title insurance company. I'm a receptionist. Well, when your grades are my grades, you can't get the job you want. And I'm sitting behind a desk making coffee. I'm greatly humbled. I'm no longer editor of the student newspaper. All that's gone. I'm humbled. Thank God for the moments that he brings humility in your life. Even if he has to use a spoon to scoop it out of your heart. I just did that. And a guy walks in. And he's there for an interview. And he just asked me, are you a Christian? I said, it's a long answer to that. A long answer. And he introduced me to his pastor, uh, Brett Fuller. And Brett Fuller became my pastor and has been my pastor for the last 30 years. And I learned what it was to be a man, how to pray, how to humble myself, how to set up chairs, how to run the courts or the soundboard, how to desire to hold a plunger as much as you want to hold a mic. How to serve a man's vision. How to walk in agreement with other brothers. How to repent. And it's just been a wonderful journey. And then there's a moment where I start growing in the church. And one of my friends who came to Jesus around the same time I did, we were out for a jog. And at the end of the jog, um, I laughed out loud because we were praying. He said, why'd you laugh? I said, God told me a joke. He said, well, what's the joke? He said, go back to American University. He said, oh, yeah, that is a joke. <laughs> Dude, there's no way you're going back to American University. I, I heard what they told you. I said, I know. I said, I, and my prayer was like, God, let me explain something. You and I weren't too tight back in the day. So I need to bring you up on the speed what happened at AU and what they said. <laughs> this might not be a good idea. You want me to go back to school, pick something else. I mean, I could come here, UT someplace, you know, but not, not, not AU. Paisley was in, I put on my Paisley tie. And went up to the dean's office who kicked me out and it was a new dean. I thought, okay, good sign. And I said, hi, I'm a returning student. And she looked at me and said, really? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, all right, well, I'm busy. Come back tomorrow. What's your name? Donnell Jones. Great. I'll pull your grades and uh, we'll talk tomorrow. Okay. Came back the next day. She slammed the door. 
I said, I guess you saw my grades. She said, oh, yeah. Those aren't grades. Don't know what you call those. Um, We don't allow people like you to matriculate at our university. (laughs) And I don't believe you had the audacity to walk into my office yesterday and say that you are a returning student. You are anything but a returning student. Okay, should I just leave now or sit here for the rest of the beating? And she said, why do you deserve to come back? And I said, I don't. She said, well, I'm confused why you're here. I said, well, when I flunked out, I came to the end of myself. God changed my life. And I went on and on. She said, beautiful story. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Won't get you back in school, but beautiful story. (laughs) God, this is not fun. So as I get up to leave her off, she said, you know, I want you to write a paper about why you deserve to come back. I said, I told you I don't deserve to come back. Just write me a paper anyway. So typewritten, five pages. I have it at home. It's called God's Grace Begins Where Your Ability Ends. Just gave it to her. Got a phone call. Come back to my office. Went back. She said, I'm giving you freshman forgiveness. And we're reinstating you. And we're letting you start all over. And the scholarship was reinstated. Partially. No. See, that night on the bridge, what I was beginning to learn is that it wasn't just that I lost my son or lost my scholarship, is that I was lost. And when God recovered me, he then recovered everything I lost. There may be some things that you've lost, and God wants to recover them tonight. And I want to pray for you in a moment to recover all. When David was going back to Ziklag and it had been burned to the ground, he said to the Lord, shall I pursue Shall I overtake? And God said, you shall pursue, you shall overtake, and you shall recover all. I want you to know as men, God wants you to recover all. So scholarship was recovered. Grades went to 3.8, 3.9. It's really nice having numbers in front of the decimal point. It feels a lot better. And I was in the band, played trumpet. Met Marianne, she sang. The first time we went out, I shared my heart with her. That I admired her. Uh, it was growing in my affection, and my prayer was that our relationship could result in marriage, but if not, we could remain friends. A year earlier, she'd had the same conviction, but never, never once let on. Um, second time we went out, I told her I had a son I never met. And if that's a deal breaker, I get it. She said, no, I can't wait to meet him. I said, well, I've never met him myself. She said, I want to be there when you meet him. I said, great. So 18 months later, when Pastor Brett said, you may now kiss your bride, it was the first time we kissed. It wasn't the kind of man I was. Um, immorality was rampant in my life. Uh, sexual impurity rampant in my life. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, but impurity, sensuality, pornography, all that. Um, prostitution, all that. And... Um, So God had to deliver me of a lot of stuff. And um, it was amazing for us just to wait. The reason why I wanted to wait was to honor God, to honor her. And I don't know about you, but I've got testosterone. She's got estrogen. It's just kind of combustible. We just figured if we didn't kiss, we'd be okay. You know, Um, the Bible doesn't say don't kiss on that. No, no theology here. I'll just give an analogy instead of theology. For, for me, I wouldn't 
get in a Lamborghini just to go 25 miles an hour. Why well, start it if you're not going to drive it? And, um, we're just going to sit here and park. All right, let's turn it off. I can't do that. If I start the engine, we're going for a drive. You feel me? Better not to start the engine. So I didn't kiss her because that would be starting the engine. So we held hands for 18 months. But on my honeymoon, I... <laughs> Christmas. You know, if you open... If you open your Christmas present in November and then put the bow back on it and then open it up on Christmas morning, wow, it's not the same. God redeems. He redeems. Say God redeems. He does. So if he opened it before, he still redeems. And um, so six months into our marriage, uh, we were at a meeting about this side. And there was some prophetic ministry going on, and we were asked to stand up. And all these great things were expressed prophetically. I was working at a law firm at the time. My wife's an accountant. And a man looked at me and said, I need to ask you a question. And I said, sure. And he said, do you have a little boy? It's been six years, almost seven years. And a meeting just like this, he said, do you have a little boy? Mary and I were only six months married. The whole room just listened and wondered if he was a little early prophetic. Maybe he was thinking she was pregnant. I knew better. I didn't know how to answer. I was honestly gripped in that moment, kind of jaw-dropping. I knew about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead, so I didn't say anything. <laughs> He's going to say the next words, not me. <laughs> Do you have a little boy? And he was mature. He was seasoned. He could see my face, my countenance. And so he navigated it so well. That's what mature leadership does. It, it recognizes that truth needs to be spoken, but it navigates in the moment how best to communicate that truth so that you're helpful and not harmful. And he said, I see this boy, and I believe he's your son, and God's going to do an amazing thing between you and him. He's going to restore your relationship. You'll be in ministry. You'll travel together. It's wow. Afterwards, we pulled him aside and said, when you said, do you have a little boy, were you saying, I'm going to or I do? He said, oh, no, you do have a boy. I said, yes, sir, you're right. And two weeks later, I'm going to work, and I physically bump into a woman. And I'm in a hurry to get to the office on time, and I, I catch her balance so she doesn't fall. And I look at her face, and it's my son's grandmother. Two weeks after. She was an accountant in the East Wing. I was working at a law firm in the West Wing as a legal assistant, and we never saw each other all that time. And she gave me her daughter's number, and I called North Carolina. I said, Pam, this is Donnell. I have asked God to forgive me, but I've never asked you to forgive me for failing to be a man. 
who responded properly to you and to our son. I am a Christian for real. Not just a jersey with the name on the back. And I beg you to forgive me and to give me the opportunity to father our son. I am prepared spiritually, emotionally, financially, in every way. And I'm so sorry that I abandoned both of you for seven years. Can you forgive me? There's a long silence. And she says, I wouldn't believe a word of what you just said to me, except that seven months ago, I gave my heart to God. I'm part of a local church here in North Carolina. The women in the church have asked questions about who is your son's father. And I won't mention your name because I've been angry. And they've been praying that the father would come forward. So now that you're calling, I realize it's an answer to their prayers. Your son's about to turn seven and he's starting to ask, who's my daddy? And I said, wow, what church? And she said, I'm a part of Kings Park International Church. So that you know why some men are responding that way is because at that point, there was only one Every Nation Church in Washington, D.C., and only one Every Nation Church in North Carolina. She ended up in the one in North Carolina. I ended up in the one in D.C. And our pastors, Pastor Bress Fuller and Pastor Ron Lewis, are best friends who walk together. In fact, Ron Lewis had come to D.C., and I'd carried his luggage from the airport. And I had no idea that my former girlfriend and son were in his church. Let's give glory to God. So driving to North Carolina was the, uh, the longest drive of my life. I've driven further than five hours, which is the distance from D.C. to North Carolina. That's not what made it the longest. What made it the longest is that my new bride of six months was going to meet my girlfriend from when I was 17, 18. Yeah. I didn't watch soap operas, but I know what drama looks like. <laughs> and I tried to get her to stay home. She said, no, I wanted to be there when you met her. I'm like, oh, yeah. Mm, God, help. Oh, God. I'm praying all the way to North Carolina. This could blow my marriage up. Woo! Scared. Mufasa, scared. <laughs> we pull up Sunday morning. They just finished a set of songs. The sanctuary doors open. This little boy walks out. His mom's behind him, so I know it's him. And I literally just take a knee. And he walks and he falls into my arms. And it's strange and wonderful. It's strange because most fathers don't hold their children for the first time when they're seven years old. It's wonderful because God is a reconciler. And I'm holding him. And his mom approaches and my wife extends her arms and embraces her and prays for her and they both start weeping. And I'm going... This is better than Hallmark. I mean, this is this. This is heaven. And we go into the church, a thousand people, and tell the whole story. And Pastor Ron didn't even preach that Sunday. And people were weeping coming forward. And I just pray for everybody who wanted to be reconciled.
some way, somehow. And John came to live with us. My wife homeschooled him. Then he went back and forth. He went to Harvard University, biology major, graduated. Before he got married, he gave me that statute and said, Dad, do you know what this is? And I said, yes, it's the first time we met. And I just broke and wept. You see, any day I want to quit, any day I want to think, man, why did I decide to be a pastor? Any challenges or rough spots in my marriage, I don't care what I go through. I have a memorial stone, the unmistakable hand of God's grace and mercy in my life. And I can't go back across the Jordan, no matter how many battles are in front of me, because that is a constant reminder of the stone of what God has done in my life. I promised I promise John's mom that I would not change his name from Robinson to Jones because I abandoned them. John called me one day and said, Dad, I talked to mom, meaning his birth mom, not my wife, his stepmom. And now I'm talking to you. I'm changing my name from Robinson to Jones because you're my dad. I'm your son, and I want to carry your name. And so my granddaughter, who will be six tomorrow, is Zoe Jones. I want to pray for you. If you need to be free from anything, if you have a, a wound, a father wound, I had to forgive my dad for any benefit that I didn't receive or any harm done to me because of his absence. And God said to me, when are you going to let your daddy die? And I said, God, he's already dead. No, no, no. He's dead in the grave, but you're still holding him responsible for the failure that's happened of him not benefiting you or withholding something from you. And I learned a lesson, and I want to pray this for men in this room. Jesus was raised by Joseph, and Joseph did a phenomenal job. But for Jesus to go the distance of who God called him to be, when he's 30 years old and he's baptized, the heavens are open, the spirit is descending like a dove, and he hears this declaration, you are my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. Acceptance, affirmation, and approval. It's a legitimate need we have, but we, we will either live from that need being met by God or illegitimately, we will perform to get it. But performance is never how God intended you to get it. Because it's relationally based, not performance based. And we need to know that in a culture like ours that says you are who you are based on your performance. So if you say, I need prayer for anything you've heard tonight, even something I didn't say, but the Holy Spirit just touched you, just stand where you are, anybody at all.